We're so glad that y'all have joined us online for worship today, and we're positive that God has something specifically to speak just to you. We want you to know that you are always welcome here at First Baptist Azel, and that you can connect with us by going online to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. Now let's hop back into the sermon and hear what God has for us today. All right, Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. What a spectacular passage. The disciples would not agree. (laughs) We'll see why in a minute. But would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray you would teach us from this passage this morning. If we're like the disciples, I pray that you would build in us the same faith you built in them. Forgive us for those times where we have been weak in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning's message, you may be seated, this morning's message is entitled, Building a Faith That Matters. Building a Faith That Matters. Now, you'll notice uh, we're going to talk about a story in the Bible in Matthew chapter 17 about a healing of demon possession. What you see in the picture is another healing of another demon possession. Both of these have something strongly in common other than just uh, healing And we'll look at that in a minute. We're going to eventually make our way to that story. Building a faith that matters. I'll admit to you, I come from a family of believers. My grandparents were raised and raised families during the Great Depression, a time where the government was broke. The U.S. faced its greatest depression in its history, and there really wasn't such thing as credit like we have today. Uh, And so it was tough. People were growing hungry. Unemployment in the United States was at 25%, two and a half times the unemployment rate right now. And there was no virus to blame, nor was there any cure to anticipate. No bailouts from Congress back then. This kind of thing tends to build one's faith as our nation came to God looking for deliverance. My parents grew up in a time where the United States was under attack and faced a real threat of the extinction of our nation as we knew it. Everything was scarce. Many things were rationed during World War II. Prayer took on a new level of urgency. That kind of thing tends to build faith. My father fought in Europe against a pretty formidable enemy, the Germans, who were intent on killing him and all of his fellow soldiers. And if the Germans succeeded, uh, they intended to bring their dictator over here to us. And the only thing that could truly intervene and guarantee victory was the power of a sovereign God. That kind of thing tends to build faith. We talk a lot about faith. Of course, I'm a pastor You know it's going to come into all my sermons sooner or later, one way or another, and we discuss it and we read about it. But uh, I'll admit we do tend to conceptualize it and complicate it into obscurity. What is faith? 
I think the best definition doesn't come from an encyclopedia or a dictionary or even from Wikipedia, but from Hebrews chapter 11, that great and most famous chapter in the Bible that is the chapter of faith. And in that chapter, the famous or infamous examples of those common people who had great faith, men like Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Moses, and even a woman named Rahab. But it begins with a simple, profound definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. If you'll look there with me. And you probably know this verse well. If you don't, mark it and learn it. It begins all of those illustrations of faith with this definition. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, I have to ask you, what is it that we hope for? What is he talking about here? What do we hope for? That the Cowboys will win? What's he talking about? Hope for what? All right, we hope for salvation. Anytime you see the word hope in the New Testament, it's talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that through and by faith in him, or through his grace, that you and I have been given forgiveness and mercy. And our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And we're guaranteed entrance into heaven to live eternally with God. That's the hope he's talking about. Now, faith, he says, is being sure of what we hope for. And it may well be that there are many people who hope for salvation in Jesus Christ, hope for salvation in heaven, but it's, it's barely more than a pipe dream in our mind. We're not confident. It's better than nothing, we'll say. It's fire insurance, maybe. Maybe we'll get it, maybe we don't. I hope we do. But this definition of faith says this. It is being sure of what we hope for. That I have no doubt in my mind that I'm going to see my mother and father again. I have no doubt in my mind that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, the blood of Christ covers me. And by the mercy of God, I will have eternal life. I have no doubt that there will come a time where I will stand at the feet of Jesus or bow at the feet of Jesus and I will see him face to face. I have no doubt of that. I have no doubt that God is in control of this world. His sovereignty reigns. And so it says now faith is being sure. And so my question to you today is, are you sure of what you hope for? Well, we're going to find out the disciples weren't quite sure. They had a little struggle. And we all have struggles. God knows that. Jesus knew that in our passage for today in dealing with these sad, sad, sad disciples. So we're going to look at today a group of faithless disciples. They, they wouldn't want to say that, but we're going to find out that is in fact the case. And he wanted to build faith in their hearts. Now you understand and you remember that these faithless disciples who were spiritually incompetent in this passage would go on to be built up through Christ to become the mighty faithful apostles. Many miracles are going to come through these disciples. 
are these apostles. That's in time, but right here, their faith had not been built up yet. Although Jesus has tried, and we'll look at that in just a minute. I want us to look at this passage today. Because I want you to know this morning that as Christ built faith in the hearts of the disciples, he wants to build faith in your life too. Wherever you are, God wants to increase and build your faith today. Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. Let's take a look there. I'm going to read the whole story to you, and then we're going to, we're going to notice a couple of things. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or in the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was, he was healed from that moment. The disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, just a couple things from this passage I want you and I to notice this morning. First of all, we see a pretend faith. We see a pretend faith. Remember this, if you don't remember anything else. Just claiming to have faith isn't the same as actually having faith. Now, that sounds silly or even simplistic, but it is very true. Just claiming to have faith is not the same as actually having faith. And so what you and I need to do is find out, is our faith genuine or not? I, let me ask you this. <clears throat> the day before this incident happened, if you could go back in time and meet the disciples and you were to ask them, do you have faith? What do you think they would say? Oh, yeah, we've left everything to follow Jesus. We, we, we're, we're the 12 disciples. We're the, we're the super followers because he had thousands that were following him, but only 12 got to be disciples. They would say, of course we have faith. We have faith more than all these people. That's why he chose us. But when it came time to cast out the demon, they couldn't do it because they had no faith. The moment their faith was actually tested, it turns out that they didn't have real faith. They had pretend faith. And I'm telling you, pretend faith won't get you very far in life. Won't get you very far. With faith, you can do anything. You move mountains. But without faith, it's just talk. And so you need to know that. They, they begin with a pretend faith. So if I were to ask you the same question I asked the disciples, would ask the disciples, do you have faith? And I'm sure, surely you would say, yes, pastor. I mean, you're here. We don't get a lot of atheists. And so surely you would say, yes, pastor, of course I have faith. And so the question is, is that faith genuine faith or is it? Pretend faith. Again, those disciples believed that their faith was genuine, but there was a test, and they failed the test. Now, notice the results of the pretend faith. What, what happened as a result of their, 
they're uh, attempting to cast out this demon with no faith. What happened? Yeah, nothing happened. <laughs> That's what happened. You can imagine the father's looking at the son. Now, I don't know how he knew it failed. It didn't work. I don't know if he jumped in fire immediately or well, apparently when your kid's demon-possessed, they're even more difficult than most kids. <laughs> they, they, he saw something or noticed something that the kid was doing or saying. I don't know what he was doing, but it was very obvious it didn't happen. It didn't work. I also find it interesting because he, he came crying out after Jesus that he didn't just go straight to Jesus. I don't know if the disciples got to him first or that he came to the disciples asking for Jesus and the disciples thought, well, we'll take care of the problem. That way we don't have to bother Jesus about it. It doesn't give us the backstory, but I'm fascinated by this. I also find myself wondering, <clears throat> obviously the disciples attempted to heal the boy. Did they all do their thing at once? Or did they go down the line? Now you have to remember, except for Judas, uh, God is going to do miraculous things through these disciples. For years and years and years, they're going to have power to cast, they are in fact going to cast out so many demons and heal so many people in their lifetimes and in their ministries. These guys are going to become the mighty apostles. And so when they go, here's their first, you know, they're, they're just rookies. Here's their first shot at it. So I can just picture, it doesn't say whether they all try to do it once or one at a time, but I can just picture John going up and saying, all right, get out of him, you demon, and nothing. And so Peter comes up and says, all right, let me try it. <laughs> and he tries it, and then James, and then all down the line, they all give it a shot, and nobody can do it. And they're all mystified, by the way. We'll get to that in just a minute. But the results of pretend faith was nothing. The result of your pretend faith and my pretend faith will be exactly the same, nothing. Your, your claim to be a, a believer in Christ, your claim upon miracles or the miraculous or the powerful presence of God will mean nothing if you don't believe it. The son was not healed. Results were zero. The same results they would have gotten if they were atheists. So it doesn't really matter what you claim to believe if you don't actually believe it. I've told you before, I believe I'm Batman. But I don't really believe I'm Batman. If I believed I were Batman, I'd be wearing ears right now on the cape and the whole thing. I'm not Batman, by the way. It doesn't make any difference. I, I, I say that as an exercise of absurdity. Because it is absurd for the, de for the deacons, for the disciples to think that they could cast out this demon when they, in their heart, did not have faith. So the son was not healed. The second thing we notice, uh, the result of pretend faith was the disciples felt defeated. And they felt defeated because they were defeated. <laughs> That's how defeated people feel. And so they felt that way. They, they failed. They couldn't do it. And they, no doubt, were discouraged because of it. The third thing is they made Jesus want to quit. Now, Jesus didn't quit, and he wasn't tempted to quit, but I get the impression he found himself wanting to quit as a result of that. I don't blame him at all. If you look with me in verse 17, here's what he said. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I what? Say, you ever felt that way at your job? How long am I going to stay at this job? 
How long am I going to stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? He's asking the question. Now, you know your faith is pretty bad when Jesus wants to quit. (laughs) And so Jesus sees this lack of faith. Now, why is he so frustrated? And by the way, notice it's not just a disciple problem. It's a generational problem. Here's what he says. He says, oh, unbelieving and perverse, not disciples, perverse generation. It was systemic. He lived in a spiritually lethargic world where people, even those Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes, all the religious leaders and the priests, they're all claiming to be men of faith, but they lacked it. And so he says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. We may well be living in the most unbelieving generation in history right now. If you think the disciples lacked faith, you should see our world today. And the problem isn't the faithless. I'll say that again. The problem isn't the faithless. The problem is the faithful not really having faith. I'd rather blame the faithless. I've told you before, I have been to Japan a couple of times. We have as a church, been to Japan twice on mission trip. And uh, if you've ever been to Japan, it's a fascinating culture. I told you that it is one of the more difficult or one of the most difficult countries and people groups in the world to convert to Christianity. And part of that is because the theology or the doctrine that they do have is so foreign. It is so radically different from this concept that there is an all-loving God that created everything, that he loves us so much that he's concerned about our sin and he's a moral God. And so he sends his son to die for us on the cross and has power over death and was resurrected. They don't get any of that. They don't get that. It's very difficult for their mindset. What doctrine they do have is an offshoot or stems from Buddhism, And they believe that it is possible for one to obtain enlightenment. Now, they acknowledge that it's it's difficult to do that in this life. And there is a kind of a sense of a a God, a, a, a deity or divineness that happens or can happen with us. And so what happens when their parents and their grandparents, their loved ones pass away, they go and they light a candle for their loved one. And then they'll go back and they go back. And the belief is if they continue that faithfulness, it's very much a works-based salvation that they can, in the afterlife, bring their, their dead loved ones, their dead parents or grandparents, they can bring their spirits to a place of enlightenment, a place of Godhead. Does that make sense? So it's a works-based salvation for the afterlife. Now, here's the thing about it. So they light those candles. You can go to the shrines, and they're there lighting the candles for their parents and their grandparents. The problem with that is, statistically, most Japanese don't believe that anymore. I'm pretty sure I've shared that with you before. They don't believe it. They don't believe their own religion. But they continue to do it faithfully because they do it to honor and respect their parents and their grandparents, even though they don't believe it. So they're just going through the motions. I told the early service, and I I really commend them. I commend them for respecting their parents that much to do something they don't even believe. But what an empty religion. So I told the early service, they're willing to honor their parents by lighting a candle. By the way, I think it's 40 years. 
You got to light it for 40 years before your parent becomes. So I said, I wonder how many times my kids would light the candle <laughs> before they gave up on it. But uh, that's exactly what they do. But they don't believe it. Now, you and I, we're Christians. We know the truth. We have the Word of God. The truth has set us free. We say that, but if we don't believe it, we're no different than those who are in Japan living a lie in their faith or lack of it. So it was a pretend faith that they had. The second thing we know, notice, is not just the pretend faith or the pretend belief, but we see a patient Savior. We see a patient Savior Jesus uses this moment as a teaching moment for his disciples and for you and I also. Look with me in verse 19, if you would. Verse 19. It's uh, uh, right there toward the bottom, the second from the bottom. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked him, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Now, you notice, first of all, the disciples they don't even know. You'd think they would know, but they don't. They go to Jesus. Now, they go at night because they failed, and they don't want to make a show about the fact that they failed, but they come to Jesus, and they ask him the question, why did we fail? Let me, again, this, we're speculating, but let me ask you, what do you think they expected Jesus to say to them? Have you ever thought about that? They go to Jesus, and they ask him, I, I can guarantee whatever they're expecting him to say, they're not expecting him to say, actually, you don't have any faith. They're not expecting that. They were blindsided by that. So they're asking Jesus, why did we fail? What do you think they're expecting Jesus to say? Okay, I told the early service, my dad used to say, you're not holding your mouth right. If I would try to do something and it wouldn't work, open a jar or whatever, he'd say, son, you're not holding your mouth right. And so I half expect Jesus, to, or they're thinking Jesus is going to turn to them and say something like, well, you weren't holding your mouth right. That's why it didn't work. Or you didn't say this word right, or that incantation, or you weren't standing in the right position, or whatever it was. I think that they, I truly think that they thought there was a logistical problem to the healing, and it didn't work for them. And if they found out the secret formula from Jesus, then it would work. And so they're shocked, I promise. And when Jesus says to them, actually, it didn't work because you guys don't have any faith. And he then tells them this wonderful, this wonderful solution as he helps them uh, in, in terms of a promise. But before I get to that promise, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Here's the reason why Jesus was so frustrated with them. This is chapter 17. If we go back a few chapters to chapter 14, and, and he tells them in this passage here in chapter 17, you guys don't have faith. And here's, he's frustrated from that. Back in chapter 14 is this amazing miracle. Do you remember the miracle? Jesus walked on water. He walked on water, walked on the lake. The Sea of Galilee comes up to the boat as he gets near the boat, calls Peter out at Peter's insistence. Peter steps out of the boat and is walking on water as well. 
Now we've got two men, the only two in history have ever walked on water, and they're standing on the lake, and Peter sees the storm, and hears the thunder, and he begins to sink in the lake. Jesus holds out his arm and grabs Peter by the hand, and as he's pulling him up out of the water, he says to Peter what? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Why didn't you believe? That's chapter 14. That's, what, three chapters before this. Chapter 16, just the very chapter before this, he's having another discussion with his disciples, and he's teaching them, and he's warning them about the religious leaders of the day. He says, I warn you about the yeast of the Pharisees. And when he said yeast, like typical men, they actually thought Jesus was talking about bread. It's so dumb. They thought he was talking about bread. Well, I'm hungry right now. Sounds good. Amen. Fresh baked bread. Go down to Spring Creek and get that. Oh, anyway, that's the disciples. That's where their mind was. Jesus said the word yeast and they just, oh, it's lunchtime. Let's go. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. He says, he says, he turns to the disciples and he says exactly the same thing. He says, you of little faith. You can look that up later. That's chapter 16. And now we're in chapter 17. And it is exactly the same uh, thing. So uh, uh, he's faced this over and over and over again. And I wonder how many times in our lives where God is testing our faith and we fail and we fail and we fail and how frustrating it must be to God. Because you know what he says? You guys don't have to have a lot of faith. He doesn't require faith that's here. He doesn't have to, you don't have to have Billy Graham faith. You don't have to have the Apostle Paul faith. You have to have a mustard seed faith. That's it. And they did not even have that. A patient Savior is followed by, and I'll I'll close with this, a powerful promise. A powerful promise. A patient Savior and a powerful promise. Look in verse 20. Here's the promise, by the way, if you didn't catch it. Verse 20, he replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. He says, if you guys have just a little bit of faith, that's genuine faith. You don't have to have a lot as long as it's genuine he says, if you have real faith, even in small amounts, you can do the impossible. And I believe that God has called you and me to do the impossible. I believe that God desires to do the impossible in Hazel, Texas, through First Baptist Church. And this isn't the only church that he wants to do the impossible through. And he's waiting for us to muster our faith together to believe that God can do what cannot be done. Otherwise, nothing, he says, nothing will be impossible for you. A powerful promise. To illustrate that, I want to share with you an incident that happened. I told you, this is chapter 17. He had the yeast conversation in chapter 16, or the bread talk in chapter 16. And then in chapter 14 is when he walked on the water. And so he has, you have little faith, you have little faith because you have such little faith. But I skipped chapter 15. Now in chapter 15, he didn't say that, but there is an incident that happened that is 
all about faith. In fact, it amazed Jesus, not because they didn't have enough faith, but because this individual had faith. And it wasn't a Pharisee or a Sadducee. It wasn't a teacher of the law or a scribe. It wasn't a religious leader. It wasn't a priest. It wasn't the disciples either. Of all people, it was a foreign woman in the first century. That didn't mean a lot. That didn't say a lot, but it impressed Christ. Of course, he saw all, he doesn't see gender. He doesn't see nationality. That's just stuff that we see. He saw a person, a human being of great faith. I want to share that passage with you just briefly. This is Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's way up north. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, you see the story, a woman comes to Jesus and she makes an appeal for her child, just like we saw from our passage for today. A parent comes and makes an appeal for their child. In, in chapter 17, it's a father for his son and here is a mother for her daughter, but it's the same appeal. And Jesus does not respond. Why do you think he doesn't respond? Any idea? Is he sleepy? All right, wants her to, to, to express her request? Okay. And in, in fact, they end up having a conversation. I think it was also a teaching moment for the disciples. Again, they, just got, he, they had just seen him walk on water. That had just happened recently in the previous chapter. And so Jesus is aware. Maybe Jesus is thinking, maybe the disciples can heal her. Or maybe he's thinking, these guys don't have any faith. I'm going to use this as an object lesson so he doesn't say anything. And so the disciples come to Jesus, and do they make an appeal to Jesus? This woman is concerned about her little girl, and we're concerned about her little girl too. Jesus, would you heal her little girl? Is that what they said? No, they're complaining. They don't even see the miracle. They're missing the moment entirely. All they think about is this person is annoying. And the reason they think that is because in the first century, women were not highly esteemed. Jesus respected women more than anybody in that day and age or most day and ages since. He had tremendous respect for women. He didn't belittle her at all or think less of her at all because of the fact that she was a woman or the fact that she was Syrophoenician, that she was Canaanite. She wasn't a Jew. But to the disciples, she was no better than a dog. A woman and a foreign woman at that. What audacity that she would come and waste their time. And they come in and complain. And here's what, here, did you see the complaint? They said, Jesus, 
get, this, get rid of this woman, she keeps crying out after us. But in fact, she wasn't crying out after them. Who was she crying out after? Yeah, she was, she was saying, Lord, son of David. That's not a reference to the disciples. That's a reference to Jesus. They don't even care about Jesus. They just, they're annoyed and they want her to leave. It's an awkward moment. <laughs> so Jesus, knowing their hearts, he says, and I know I've shared this and you probably studied this before. Jesus says, uh, realizing they think of her like she's some dumb dog. Jesus said, well, you know what? It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Who are the children? The Israelites, the disciples. They're deserving of the Messiah. Ooh, you know, who are, who's deserving in America? Well, us. Who's deserving in the world? Well, God's people, we're, we're Christians. And so we get this kind of haughtiness in our head, just like the disciples did. And they saw her just as a low-life dog. I've told you there are two words for dogs in the Greek. There is the word for a wild dog, a, 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 a vicious dog, and there's a word for a house dog, a puppy dog, like you and I have in our own. And he used, now if you're going to call somebody a dog in any century, you call them the wild dog. That's the insulting term, but Jesus used the wrong term. He used the little puppy dog term. He's using a play on words. The disciples didn't get it. They're so dumb. They don't even know what's going on. They're so faithless, they, they really have no clue. But the Syrophoenician woman gets it. She gets it. Why would he call her a puppy dog, a house dog? Why would he say, oh, okay, okay. And then she responds, ah, but Lord, even the little puppy dog, the little house dog gets to eat the crumbs that fall off the table. She's saying, Lord, all I need are crumbs from my child. Your crumbs are powerful enough to heal my child. What little power that you want to just seep to me, I'll just take a little. That's all I need. Because she had faith. And he, he caught that immediately. He, he sensed her heart. And he said, woman, you have great faith. And so here's chapter 14, faithless. Chapter 16, faithless disciples. Chapter 17, faithless disciples. And right in the middle of this, there's a Syrophoenician woman who had great faith. And so you see this powerful promise. Now, here's the good news. Listen to me. We're done, but listen to me. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've been in your life. It doesn't matter how you look. God can do the impossible through you if you believe. How's your faith today? I pray that God will do whatever he must do to build our faith. Faith that the Bible really is true. There really is a God who made us and who loves us. There really is a Savior who redeems us. There really is a heaven and a hell. And there is a hope in our salvation for which we can be sure that we're going to make it to heaven, that our name is written in that book because of the grace of God in Christ. Did you know that the African impala can jump to a height of over 10 feet and jump a distance of over 30 feet? Yet these magnificent creatures can be kept in an enclosure at any zoo, I'm told, by building a wall that's just three feet tall. Now, not a fence, it has to be a wall. They can't see on the other side because impalas will not jump unless they can see where they're going to land. 
It's interesting. Faith is the ability to trust what we cannot see. And with faith, we are freed from the flimsy enclosures that are around us in this world. Have faith. Let God build your faith. And he will do things that will shock you. Pray with me. Father, we come to you today with that request. May you build faith in our lives. Help us to do our part. There comes a moment where we have to choose. I'm going to step forward in faith. I'm going to believe, even though I may not have answers to every question. Even though I wasn't there, I still believe. I believe in my Savior, in my redemption, in my hope, and in your glory. Build my faith today. As you're praying, are there impossibilities in your life? God knows. God desires to do the impossible through your life, through your family, and through this church. He can do things that nobody would believe. He can do things in this nation that no one would believe. And listen to me. Our our nation is facing a crisis of faith. We don't have a viral problem or a political problem. We have a faith problem. And if the faith is there among God's people, genuine faith, God will rule. Christ will prevail. And this nation will experience revival. It has to start somewhere. How about here in your heart? If you're watching online, I want to challenge you. Do you have genuine faith? Will you let God build your faith beginning today? No one's looking around. As you pray, would you stand? In this time, I want to give you an opportunity to just come and kneel and say, God, build my faith. Will you build my faith? Grant me the faith that I need. It may be you're right there right now thinking, you know what? I'm probably one of the disciples. I say I have faith, but I had faith. And I'm not really sure. I have genuine faith. And you want to pray, God, instill in me great faith. Give me faith. Help me. And I believe that God will give you the faith you need could be God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church. And so you want to come here to the front and say, Pastor, we would like to join today. We want you to know you're welcome here. We're thrilled to have you. Could be you want to take that first step of faith. You can't skip the step, by the way. That first step of faith where you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. You surrender your life to Him. Come down and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. That's all you have to do. And we'll talk about it from there. If God is calling right now, as we pray, this invitation is for you. You come. Well, thanks for joining us today online for our worship service. We hope that you are ministered and encouraged to while you're with us. And we just want to remind you that you can connect with us online by going to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. We hope to see you again next week.